0: You'll join me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. This morning we will be looking at verses 25 through 29 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans. If you want to follow along in the blue ESV Bible in the seat back in front of you, you can find that on page 940, page 940. The title of our sermon this morning is, A Matter of the Heart, and our keywords for our worshipers in training are Jew, heart, and spirit. Now, I've shared before, but I want to revisit my favorite of all of Shakespeare's plays. It's the comedy, The Merchant of Venice. For those who are not familiar, the story goes that in Venice, there's a a young man named Bassanio And he's seeking out a loan of 3,000 ducats so that he can travel to woo a wealthy heiress of Venice named Portia. To get the necessary funds, Bassanio pleads with his friend Antonio, who is a merchant. Now, unfortunately for Bassanio and Antonio, all of Antonio's money is currently invested in merchant ships that are presently out to sea. However, to help Bassanio, Antonio arranges for a short-term loan of the money from a man by the name of Shylock, who was a Jewish moneylender. Now, Shylock had a deep-seated hatred for Antonio because of the insulting treatment that Antonio has shown him in the past. Nevertheless, when, when pressed, Shylock strikes one of the world's most terrible bargains, The 3,000 ducats must be repaid in three months, or Shylock would take a pound of flesh from Antonio. And so, Antonio agrees to this because he's confident the ships will return before the appointed date of repayment. Now, at this point in the play, Shakespeare introduces Portia. Now, before he died, Portia's father included in his will that any man who sought to marry his daughter, Portia must choose among three coffers, one of which contained a portrait of Portia. If a man chose correctly, he could marry Portia. However, a wrong choice meant that he had to vow to never marry or court any woman ever again. The princes of Morocco and Aragon both failed the test and were turned away. Bassanio, on borrowed money, makes the trip to choose from among the coffers, and he chooses correctly and happily agrees to marry Portia that very night. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, things aren't going well for the merchant Antonio. Two of his ships were wrecked in transit, and his creditors, including Shylock, are now asking for repayment. Bassanio receives word about Antonio's problem. He gets to Venice as quickly as possible, leaving his new wife Portia behind, or so he thought. Portia travels after him secretly alongside her maid. The two disguise themselves as men. Portia disguised herself as a lawyer and her maid as a legal clerk. When Bassanio arrives, The loan is in default. Shylock is demanding his pound of flesh, and he wants it directly from Antonio's heart. And so Bassanio pleads with Shylock, offering him three times the amount of the borrowed amount of money since he now has his wife's fortune. He can pay him back, but Shylock is not concerned with this. He's concerned with revenge. He wants his flesh. And so Portia enters the scene under her disguise as a lawyer to defend Antonio. As she, too, points Shylock to a better way, she wants to point him to the way of mercy, to the way of forgiveness, away from the demand of the law. He persists in his desire. He will collect a pound of flesh because that's what the agreement was. He wants to follow the letter of the law. There will be no vacillating. There will only be what our agreement states, one pound of flesh. However, Portia finds a technicality. Sure enough, A pound of flesh was agreed upon. This is the proper payment. However, there was no mention in the original agreement that the flesh could include any blood. And since Shylock wanted the letter of the law... Portia pointed out that to draw any blood by taking that pound of flesh was a violation of the agreement. In fact, to take a pound of flesh would end Antonio's life. So Shylock was not only in breach of the agreement if he drew blood, he also conspired to murder a Venetian citizen. So, the case was decided against him, and because of all that he proposed to do, half of his wealth was taken and given to the city and the other half to Antonio while he was left with nothing. In the end, Antonio gives back his half of the penalty on the condition that Shylock bequeath it to his disinherited daughter. So, a broken and defeated Shylock accepts this agreement while everyone else goes on their merry way with much joy and happiness. Now, what Shakespeare is able to do here is highlight something that exists in the heart of every man or woman. It's exactly what Paul is addressing in our text this morning. Depending on the circumstances, we are so prone to fail to make important distinctions between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law, When it suits us, we we want to be able to either look at our supposed adherence to the letter of the law to justify ourselves, or we want to insist on another person's insistence upon the letter of the law, like Shylock did, because we perceive that an injustice of some kind has been perpetrated against us. And when we do this, we fail to consider the spirit of the law. We get focused on the technicalities of how something is stated or how something happens, and we either want to defend ourselves or we want to condemn others based on the letter of the law instead of stopping and asking, what was the point of this law in the first place? What was the intention here behind this law? What was the reason this became a law? Was the intention of this law to be interpreted the way I am trying to interpret it, to apply it right now? This is one of the reasons why, in the realm of civil law in our society, it is so technical. It is so convoluted because of these kinds of distinctions. And so we need lawyers to argue and judges and juries to make determinations. There was a dairy company in Maine in 2014 that was being sued by its delivery drivers for $5 million. And the suit concerned the the exemption from Maine's overtime law that says it does not apply to canning, processing, preserving, freezing, drying, marketing, storing, packing for shipment or distribution of foods. Now, the lawsuit claimed that there was no Oxford comma in the part of the law that indicated packing for shipment or distribution, and the driver said the words referred to the activity of packing and shipping, but they don't do any packing. So they won the lawsuit. Now, part of me loves this because I love the nuances of grammar, and I think everyone who fails to use the Oxford comma should be fined $5 million. But what is going on here? The reality is nobody truly questioned the spirit of the law, but the drivers won on a technicality of the letter of the law. So in the same way that Shylock lost his claim based on the letter of the law, they won theirs. Now, as we've been seeing in in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul is addressing all of these various issues that have come up amongst the Jews. And most specifically, he's going after their misconceptions about their standing before God, which they assumed was on the basis of their Jewishness. They were quick to condemn the sins of the Gentiles, but were not considering their own hearts and their own actions. And in so doing, they were very focused on the letter of the law and gave no thought to the Spirit. They were prideful. They were hypocritical. They were complacent. They thought they could live their lives any way they wanted to because they were ethnically Jewish. And since the Jews were God's people, they were good to go in their minds." And one of the ways this attitude played itself out was this scenario whereby they concerned themselves with always looking to the letter of the law instead of trying to figure out why it was that God commanded what He commanded. And so we're going to see Paul's line of argument here against them as he continues to plow and turn this hard soil up in our hearts to reveal our sinful nature and our tendencies to live according to our finite wisdom instead of the infinite wisdom of God. So let's read beginning in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uh, uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, Paul is now addressing what was probably the most significant aspect of Jewishness all throughout the Old Covenant and among certainly the first century Jews namely that of circumcision. This was the sign of Jewishness, the sign that signified that the Jews were in a covenant relationship with God. It was a sign similar to the ring on the finger of a married person, a signature on the bottom of a legal contract, or the baptism of a Christian. And Paul here is going to use circumcision as an illustration. This is very important in our understanding of redemption and the law and the gospel. In the Old Covenant, there was a cutting rite involved. God commanded Abraham and all of the male Jews to have the foreskin of their flesh cut off. This was a great cultural marker of God's covenant with His people, and this had both a positive and a negative aspect to it. Positively, The sign of circumcision signified that God was cutting Israel out of the mass of the nations of the world, separating them unto Himself and distinguishing them from all of the other peoples. They were a special people to God. And so circumcision was a sign that was signified on their bodies that they had been chosen by God's grace to receive the greatest benefit any nation could possibly imagine. Now, the negative aspect of circumcision was that the covenant God made with the Israelites that was signified by the circumcision was not only a covenant of blessings and promises and benefits, but it also came with curses. For the Israelites, breaking the covenant would cut off God's people from the blessing of God and would bring curses and judgments. And you see that all throughout the history of the Old covenant. So, Paul uses this to illustrate and validate his main point in our text this morning. So, the first that we see is in verse 25, that you are not a true Christian if you are only one externally. Read verse 25 again, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now one of the most significant problems with circumcision amongst the Jews was that it had become a source of Jewish pride. It was the basis for what we talked about last week, namely their complacency in their moralism based on their cultural identity. They thought that their Jewishness signified by circumcision was a righteousness that was bestowed on them and granted to them everything that God promised without any expectation that their lives were a reflection of their relationship with God. In essence, they believed that they could live like hell because they had already inherited heaven. And so their supposed relationship with God became a source of pride instead of a source of thankfulness, instead of a source of love, instead of a source of humility before God. And and so Paul is addressing this pride, he's addressing this complacency, and this false sense of assurance based on circumcision, and he says, listen, this sign that God has commanded to signify to begin in covenant relationship with Him is important and is valuable if and only if it is something that signifies what is actually going on within you. The external sign must be a representation of something that has happened internally. If you are circumcised physically, that reality should be evident just as much as in your obedience that it is upon your flesh, it should be a revelation of what has happened on your heart. Conversely, if your life has no evidence of this internal transformation, if your life is not lived in communion with God in any way, if your life is only showing that your true heart's desire is to live for the gratification of your flesh instead of the glory of God, your circumcision is meaningless. In other words if your Jewishness does not extend beyond your being born into a Jewish family and being circumcised, you are not a true Jew. And for us, brothers and sisters, if our Christianity does not extend in any way beyond saying we are Christians, then we are not true Christians. The Jewish mindset about all of this has really carried over into the mindset of many Christianized peoples as well. Now, many, many people will identify their religious identity with their ethnic identity. For example, if you're in many African nations and, and you ask someone, are you a Christian, you will likely hear them say something like, yes, I am from the south or I am from the west, depending on what supposedly Christian part of the nation is. People in Northern Ireland will tell you they are Protestants, while mainland Irish people will say that they are Catholics. They don't go to church, they have no knowledge of the Scriptures, but they're Protestants and Catholics because they're Northern Irish or Irish. Uh, People who are Greek or Russian will call themselves Eastern Orthodox. Orthodox. Again, they have nothing to do with the church, but that's their identity based on their, their ethnicity. So, there's this false understanding of what makes a person a Christian. And so, one's ethnic identity becomes their religious identity. And there's even this significant pride that's sort of embedded in that idea. In fact, if you pry a little bit and you get to a place where you might suggest to a person that maybe they're not a Christian then there's something more than ethnic identification. They might think that you're insulting them. You're insulting their country. You're you're insulting their culture. And listen, don't shoot me. I'm just calling balls and strikes up here. I'm applying God's word. This has been a particularly pernicious problem in the southern United States for generations. It has been assumed that if you grow up in the South, if you're living in the Bible Belt, you're a Christian. Where do you live? Oh, Effingham County, Georgia sounds like a place where you're probably a Christian. But it doesn't work that way. When when Felicia and I were in Haiti in 2009, person after person after person I would talk to, I would say, Are you a Christian? And they said, Yes, I was born a Christian. You see, so th- this idea that Christianity is ethnic or it's geographic or it's cultural is completely misguided. It is, it is actually internal and personal and transformational. It is about our individual hearts, not about our geographic location, not about our ethnicity but it's it's also something we talked about last week. It's possible to put our faith in many other things, like our church membership. Being a member of the visible local church, even serving and leading and teaching in the local church, maybe this is our salvation. So think of what Paul is saying in those terms. Let's plug that into his what he says there in verse 25. For church membership indeed is of no value if you obey the law, or is, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your church membership is worthless. And we can put anything we want in that placeholder. These things, good as they are, yes, you should be the member of a local church. But good as they are, they only count if there has been real transformation in your life, if your, tr- if your heart has truly been affected. Real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things. A Christian is someone who is a Christian inside. Real Christianity. We look at what matters not just because of an an indication on the external that you're a member of God's family, but an internal heart, a membership of God's people. And this is a supernatural work. It is not something that man can do by his own hands. The reality is that it is possible to trust in Christianity, but never trust in Christ. Again, we looked at this a little bit last week, but what Paul has been showing us in using the Jews as an example, is something that we often refer to as dead orthodoxy. It is an intellectual grasp of the gospel and the truth of the Scriptures without any internal transformation. Listen, I think it's possible that I probably own more books than all of you combined. But my books, and I love them, and if you have any that you've borrowed and haven't returned, I want them back. Even if I have them all memorized, that will not save me. Through the years as a pastor, I've met many men who have placed a lot of faith in what they know and what they read and what they write about and talk about, but there is zero warmth to them when they talk about Christ. It's clear that Christ is an abstract idea to them instead of a sweet reality. Do you know the sweetness of Christ? Do you know the preciousness of Christ and what it means to be moved in your heart to joy and love for Christ because of what He has accomplished for us in His love? Listen, I am very happy to have a four-hour discussion with someone about the differences and the nuances between infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. But if in all of that, I do not have a sense whatsoever of the love and mercy and grace of God that moves me to greater worship and deeper faith and love for Christ. I'm missing something huge. We can get caught up in a form of Christianity that is outside out. It penetrates the heart in a way that doesn't transform us. It just feeds our intellectual desire instead of true gospel faith, which is inside out, where it penetrates the heart with everything that we do flowing from who we are internally because of what the Spirit has done within us. And so for those who are only external believers, the church becomes sort of a big, soft religious bed for them to land on once a week. Here's what I mean because they have a sense that their standing before God is based upon what they know and understand and can articulate, they spend all of their time during the week reading and debating with others and studying and changing everyone's minds on Facebook because we're all very good at that. They've never had any true devotion or worship because they're actually very insecure about whether or not an academic abstract God would really actually ever love them. And so every Sunday they want to gather with the church and be reassured that they are okay. They want to fall back on a soft religious bed. And there's different ways that that happens for different people. For some, the religious bed is legalism. They find comfort in adhering to certain standards of behavior and are continually reminded that they are more precise and more holy than all of those so-called Christians at all those other so-called churches. You have on a suit and tie? Amen. Women, you have your floor-length skirts and aren't wearing pants? Amen. You have the right version of the Bible? Amen. You didn't go to the movie theater this week? Amen. You didn't drink alcohol or smoke tobacco. Amen. You see, there are so many things we can turn into requirements for legal adherence. It's all kinds of things. We don't eat processed foods, and if you do, you don't care about the body God gave you. We bathe in essential oils, and if you don't, you don't trust in the natural ingredients that God has created for our healing. We're vegan, and if you're not, you don't love animals that God has created, and you're a murderer. We're homeschoolers. Don't kill me. And if you're not, you don't love your children. You don't want what's best for them. We're Duke basketball fans. So if you like UNC, actually, that one's true. <laughs> but you, you see, we, we can find all these things in our lives. A lot of these, not all of them, but a lot of these things I've named are really good. I'm glad you homeschool your kids. I don't know why you don't eat meat, but you don't have to eat meat. You can be a vegan. I'll make fun of you, but you can be. (laughs) But in and of themselves, these things are amoral. They may even be what's best, but if they are not what God requires, then for us to require them, we've just used them to create a soft landing for ourselves each Sunday so we can be reminded or hope to be reminded of them so we can adhere to them and fall back on them and be reassured for another week that I'm all right with God based on what I'm doing externally. Legalism is slavish because it's all about behavior being the grounds of our righteousness. For others, that religious bed is what they say is the supernatural works of God, They're depending on things like miracles and speaking in tongues and dreams and visions. And it's all a reliance on feelings and words from the Lord or dramatic answers to prayer. They want their emotions to be stirred up because it is in a frenzied emotional experience that they are assured of their righteousness before God. For others, it's the religious bed that's all about ritual and tradition they like all of the smells and the bells, so they're, in, in, they're entranced by the scent of incense and the pictures on the wall and the architecture of the building and the ornate beauty of the furniture and the grandeur of the mystery of the ceremony that's going on, largely without them ever hearing it or seeing aspects of it even played out before them. Following the liturgy and ceremony is their way of being assured of their right standing before God. Now, please, listen to me. I I will say this again. I want to be very clear. Theological accuracy, studying the Scriptures, moral conscientiousness, having emotional experiences before God, being deeply affected by the gospel truths and beautiful worship— having tradition, having ceremony, all of these things can be good things and we should be thankful for all of these things. We should thank God for them. We should not assume that since they have a way of sometimes beginning to become things that turn out toward dead orthodoxy, that we should get rid of them altogether. Rather, we should remind ourselves continually that our righteousness is in Christ alone and that is a gift from God that can only be found by grace through faith apart from works of the law. The importance of this principle cannot be overemphasized. Again, it should push us to self-reflection. Along with a theoretical-only approach to God's Word and a sense of moral superiority, a hallmark of dead orthodoxy is a lack of true communion with God. Do you commune with God? So, what we have to see in our next point this morning is that Paul shows us in verses 26 through 28, it is better to be an unbaptized believer than to be a baptized non-believer. What matters most is not bearing the sign of the covenant, be it circumcision, baptism, church membership, and so on, but having the reality which the sign signifies. Look again at verse 26. He says, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And so now Paul is drawing out a lesson for the Gentiles. He's saying, if your failure to fulfill the law, Jews, means that your circumcision is of no value, then it follows that the crucial, most important thing is not something like circumcision, but rather a true grasp of what the law is really teaching about the heart and about faith and about obedience that comes from that faith. You are confusing the letter of the law by relying on circumcision with the spirit of the law, which is all about the heart And if what really matters to God is your heart and not your flesh, then the uncircumcised Gentiles who grasp the real meaning and purpose of the law and have their hearts changed by the Holy Spirit and live out of obedience of faith, they will in reality be God's people while you are not. Do you have any idea what kind of blow that was to the Jews? Here's what Paul's saying, and here's Here's where some of our Christian brothers and sisters might turn me off. Paul is saying that God's people, God's true people, are not ethnic Jews, even though God's people includes ethnic Jews. God's true people are those who have faith in Christ, either through promises that were revealed or the promises that are fulfilled. And true Israel is not the people who are born Jewish in flesh, but all of God's people who are born of God in Jesus Christ. Let me be crystal clear so you know what I'm saying. I don't want to be accused of being subversive or vague here. God's people consist of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, and not all of the ethnic Jews who lived prior to Christ coming to be Christians, or that did not become Christians, will be included amongst God's people. God's people are those who have faith in Christ. And so the believing Jews of the old covenant are the people of God, just like you and I, who are in Christ today. And so what does that mean? It means all of us are one church. We are one people. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The church doesn't replace the Jews. The Jews and the church are one body. We are one people. And Paul's going to get into this even more when we get down the road in Romans quite a ways. But I think it's important that we see this playing out here. You are not simply one of God's children because you are a Jew. Ethnic Jews don't just get a pass. They don't, they don't not have to have faith in Christ because they're ethnically Jewish. That was never the point. That was never the point. The point was always that you look to Christ that you might live. And so not all Jews, Paul says, not all Jews ethnically are truly Jews, spiritually. And so you and I, another way to say this, brothers and sisters, if you and I are in Christ, we are part of the true Jewish people. We are the people of God. We are one with those who came before us. And so Paul is setting us up to show us that the Jews do not have the corner on truth or on the possession of that truth. And so once again, we have to ask, If this is all the case, as Christians we think in terms of something like baptism, is it a good and right thing for us to do? Of course it is. It is something that is an ordinance of the church that God has commanded that we fulfill. It is something that Christ exemplified for us Himself in being baptized by John the Baptist. It is something that we do as a proclamation of the gospel to the watching world, that when one is transformed by the truth of God's Word, they are dead to sin and alive to Christ. It is a means of grace. It is a means by which God gives grace to His people, both those who are participating and those who are witnessing. And so, baptism is essential. It is vital. It is important. But is baptism necessary for your salvation? Absolutely, positively, 100% no. Is baptism necessary for church membership? Yes. Because it is a physical representation of an internal reality that is a signifier, the sign that you are in covenant with God, in very much the same way that circumcision was a sign of a covenant with God. Just because signs are abused and falsely relied upon does not mean that we do away with the signs. But this truth stands tall. It is better to be an unbaptized believer than to be a baptized false Christian. And notice how Paul writes, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. In other words, that guy that you thought had no chance of having a right standing before God because he wasn't a Jew, because he wasn't circumcised, he will actually be a true Jew. He will be a part of true Israel. He is in the family of God when you are not because you've misread and misunderstood and pridefully misapplied your Bible, and you really do need salvation by grace through faith the same as the Gentiles who are inheriting all of the promises that you thought belonged to you simply because you were born Jewish. Their salvation will condemn you. So, to conclude, what does he say must happen? He tells us in verse 29, your heart must be circumcised. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. What an amazing reality. As Paul now moves from the circumcision of the flesh to the circumcision of the heart. A circumcised heart is one that is spiritually melted and softened. It is a heart that is engaged in true communion with God. It means having an active prayer life, not not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but out of love because there's a sense of the presence and the nearness and the goodness of God. That is something that the moralistic person just doesn't have in their life. They may get feelings when they're caught up in in worship or excitement in preaching or in a corporate service, but they are radically unsure that God loves them. So there is, from Sunday evening through the next Sunday morning, a sense of deadness, a sense of emptiness, a sense of insecurity. But what Paul is trying to show is why law-keeping, law-fulfilling, makes one a true Jew, and his answer is all about internal change, not external activity. He says in essence that, that law keeping makes you a true Jew because it is not mainly about keeping the law externally, but it is an internal thing. It has to do mainly with a sense of the heart and not seeing of the letter. You can demand your pound of flesh, but that's just because you don't actually understand the spirit of the law the spirit of the law is not that you can fulfill it perfectly. The spirit of the law is that your heart is circumcised, and because your heart is circumcised, you have a thankful, loving desire to please God by obeying His commandments because you know that they are best for you, and they are what brings the most glory to God. And so, the argument says, Gentile, that's all of us, I think. Maybe some of you are Jews, I don't know, but Gentile… You can be truly circumcised to God and belong to Him as a true Jew if you fulfill the law. And the response is, really? How so? And Paul answers, because being truly circumcised and being a true Jew is a matter of the heart, and it happens by the work of the Spirit. Now, that answer only makes sense if fulfilling the law means experiencing this heart change by the Spirit and then living in sync with that interchange. So the point is that a person is a true Jew, a true part of God's redeemed people if he fulfills the law, and that is if his heart is circumcised by the Spirit that he might love God. This is the promise of Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. It said, "...the Lord your God will circumcise your heart." and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That's what Paul is talking about here, and you don't have to be a natural-born Jew, he says, for that to happen to you. Listen, none of us, whether you think so now or not, none of us want to discover on the last day that we were, in truth, moralists who were orthodox in our theology and worship but dead spiritually, but the circumcision, the change, that belong, that belonging that we need with Christ is of the heart, not by the written code. And it is done by the Spirit, not by man. This is something that cannot be done externally. It's not something I can do myself. So where is our hope? The cutting off of which circumcision was a sign has already happened. Talking about the cross to the Colossian Gentile church believers who had not been physically circumcised previously. Paul says this to them. He says, in Him, Jesus, you were also circumcised, not by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. He tells them that they have, in fact, been circumcised in Christ on the cross. In His death, Jesus was cut off. He was forsaken by His Father. He was cut off from Him. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was truly circumcised. He was bearing the curse of covenant breaking. He was suffering the curse of lawbreakers like you and like me. Whether religious or unreligious, all of us deserve that curse. But in Him, we were circumcised. And so, when the Spirit works in someone, He gives them the Son's circumcision. And so, neither our religious performance nor our lack of religious performance truly matters. Through the Spirit applying the work of the Son to us, the Father sees us as objects of praise and not of condemnation. We don't need to praise ourselves. We don't need to live for the praise of others our Father in heaven sees us as beautiful. The written code leaves us facing the covenant curse and never deserving of its blessings. We need another to take our cut-offness, and only God can do that for us. It is the finished work of His Son and the internal work of His Spirit, and through that He has done it. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're confused about whether or not you're a Christian, especially based on some of what I have said this morning. And so what does it mean to trust in Christ? What does it mean to have faith in Christ? It means to recognize what Christ has accomplished, that he has lived a perfect life to fulfill the law that God required that you and I could not fulfill because God's standard was perfection and you and I will both admit that we are not perfect and that, according to God's law, is a problem. It is a problem that you are not perfect. But Christ is perfect. And Christ lived a perfect life to fulfill the law. But not only did He fulfill the law, He took upon Himself the death that we deserve for being lawbreakers. He went to the cross and died in our place. He took upon Himself the curse of the law to be cut off from the Father that we might be grafted into the family of faith. And so He was cut off on our behalf that if we have faith in Christ... In other words, if we trust that his work was for us, his death was for us, his resurrection was for us, if we put our hope in that, our trust in that, knowing that the only way I make it from this life to the next is having faith in Christ, trusting in Christ's righteousness, not looking to my life, not looking to my works, not looking to my supposed fulfillment of the law, not looking at me thinking I'm better than you, looking only to Christ, then and only then can I say that truly I understand what God has done for me in the gospel. It's not me, it's Him, and it's not something I can do or have done, it's something that He has already done for me. Do you trust in Christ? Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus who was cut off for you Is your heart circumcised? Believers, let us not fall into trying to rest on the letter of the law, our baptism, our church membership, our whatever. God forever remind us of the spirit of the law, that we live in constant communion with Him, and that our lives are a reflection of that communion, that He might be glorified, and that we might know the sweetness of Christ, not because of what we do, but because of what He has done to change our hearts and our love and our desire for Him.